So again, good evening, everybody. Um, uh, Sean reminded me, I believe it was Sean earlier, he's some, it was Sean, uh, said, do you remember the last day long you did at Spirit Rock? I was, you know, I couldn't quite remember. He said it was a day long on Maranasati. And that was, anybody at that day long? I'm just curious. Yeah, a few people. So, because I thought it was interesting, because I thought I came here tonight, and when I thought about what I would talk about, I thought I would talk about Maranasati. <laughs> so only two people think like that I'm a, a one-horse teacher here. <laughs> but but uh, partly I want to teach about Maranasati because... Well, here, here's what's been happening. So in San Francisco, where I've been back and teaching for a number of weeks now, about six weeks or something, um, one of the first things I did for my group that I've been teaching at for 20 years, um, and I'd been gone for uh, four, five, maybe five months, which is the longest time I had mi missing, I've been absent from that group in 20 years. And... Um, and they had mostly Anushka Fernando Pole was substituting for me, but also other people. And so they've had a lot of teaching. And one of the first things I taught about was skillfulness in practice when I came back to San Francisco Insight, because it's an important part of practice. It's important for all of us to learn how to be skillful in the practice of mindfulness and the practice of meditation and in how we uh, learn the Dharma. Because it's not, meditation is not the end of the story. Meditation is one of the great, beautiful doorways into the whole story. But the story is the story of the Dharma or the Dharmic understanding of reality and the impact of having those experience, having that perception, having that understanding and then that, how that impact impacts our, uh, our consciousness, our life, and our reality. And so, um, so I talked for a number of weeks about skillfulness at San Francisco Insight. And it's a really a way to consider that ultimately each of us becomes the master of our practice. And that means each of you that whatever practice we teach, even like the instructions I gave tonight, I gave some breath and body instructions, and then a little bit I named you know, the other phenomena that we might be mindful of. So one of the important things is to learn how to do that, to learn how to practice, and to learn how to be skillful or practice well, to use your intelligence, use your creativity, use your heartfulness, your care, because something important is possible through the practice of mindfulness. And so in the Buddha's teachings, one of the ways the Buddha emphasizes his teachings is by teaching people how to be skillful or to pay attention to what kind of practice is skillful at what stage of their practice. And of course, there's also all the different other facets of practice in addition to mindfulness, in addition to meditation, like speech. How, how do you practice skillfully? 
What's, what is right speech is, is the Buddhist term, but really it means skillful speech. How do you use words, language, communication skillfully? How do you work skillfully? How do you do the tasks that are asked of you in a way that's skillful? And skillful means that it's kind or helpful or with caring, with heart, with love. But it really also means in the service of awakening, in the service of waking up, in the service of liberation, in the service of realizing the possibility of human maturity that the Buddha pointed at. And so the, the skillfulness manifests both in our daily meditation practice, but also in our day-to-day -day life, how we live our life. <clears throat> and so um, last night at San Francisco Insight, after I'd talked about skillfulness for, for a few weeks, number of weeks, so I was thinking, well, where, well, you know, where to go from here? And I thought about teaching the four foundations of mindfulness, because that's an area, like you could just, we could just focus on the breath and the body as a place to get skillful. And you can get extremely skillful at being mindful of your body and your breath. You can go all the way to enlightenment through being mindful of the body and the breathing. And some people do it that way. <clears throat> or you can be extremely mindful. You can learn, so, you can get so skillful at how to pay attention to the heart, to the emotions, to the moods, to the, to the capacity of heart, to the potential of heart. And same with the mind. You can be mindful of the mind. At first, people don't even understand what that means. They don't, we don't get, oh, we can be aware of those processes that we generally identify with, and we take that to be me, the thoughts, the memories, the beliefs, the ideas. I mean, they're all fine. They're all great. You know, may you have many more, and you will. <laughs> don't worry about that. But what's, it gets really interesting when you find the capacity of heart and mind that can be aware of the mind itself can be aware of the process, thought as a process. Thought like, like emotions are a process, like sensations are a process, thoughts also being a process. So, so when I was thinking about teaching mindfulness of the four foundations of mindfulness, um, you know, I thought, well, I'd start with body, and then I thought, well, I could start with body and breathing, and then but quickly, in my, given my, who I am, and given what's happened to me recently, and given my own proclivity or my own interest in Maranasati, I thought, oh, I would teach about Maranasati. That's an important place to get skillful. That's an important place for each, each person here is going to study Maranasati at some point and study it seriously. And marana sati, marana means death, and sati means mindfulness. Mindfulness of death. And mindfulness of death is a very common Buddhist meditation practice. By common, I don't mean it's the first thing you usually get. No, I, I don't mean that. But I mean it is one of the places 
that you're taught to pay attention because, and like I say a lot of things, I don't say a lot of things with total assurity. I say it more like, oh, this is what I know or this is what I've seen and see for yourself. But the one thing tonight I'll say with assurity is you will all study death totally because you're all gonna die. And that's not a bad thing. That's not a horrible thing. That is a totally normal thing. If some, for, for animals that live, they die. That's, that's the way it is. If you're a human being and you're born, you're gonna die. And so it gets really interesting to practice with the reality of human life as it is, not, not the fantasy we have about human life, not the beliefs we should have about, oh, we should live forever. And believe me, I thought I was gonna live forever for quite a while, you know, way too long, actually. Um, and part of this comes, now you're hearing why, you know, I got that nice greeting from the Monday night class, if you don't know, because I had a very serious bike accident about five or six months ago, which is why I wasn't at San Francisco Insight for four months. Um, and, and it was a life or death accident, and I could have died. And it was clear to me, even while it was happening, and I don't mean the accident, but I mean after the accident, that, oh, at times it was clear, either I'm gonna live or I'm gonna die. And that became part of my practice. And even now, I'm, you know, I look pretty good, right, for somebody with a bad bike accident. But I'm still going to die. Not soon, or not that I know of, but it's still, it's just part of the deal. If you're a human being, and you're born, you're going to die. So I'd like to talk about it a little, and talk about it not, I'm not hoping to make anybody down or depressed or, or afraid even but to give you the possibility that your life and death, that your birth and death are all part of practice. And mindfulness is not a small-minded practice that way. It's a, it's a serious practice and it's a big practice. Birth and death, all connected, all part of the same deal, that is part of our practice. And Partly I'm saying this in this way because um, how many people have ever been to uh, Zen Center or Green Gulch? Let me just see. Oh, good. A lot of people. Great. Great. So I also really like Zen Center and have practiced there a decent amount. And if you go to practice at Zen Center, they hit a, a big wooden piece of wood, a thick piece of wood, like about this thick, about this big, called the Han, and they go. And that's how they call you to practice at Zen Center, by, by hitting the, the Han. And on the Han is painted these words. It says, great is the matter of birth and death. Great, great is the matter of birth and death. 
Life passes swiftly and is quickly lost. Awaken, awaken. Do not waste your life. That's the call to practice at Zen Center. And it's a, I think it's a beautiful call and it's a beautiful teaching. Because right there, while you're hearing this, right, and you go by and you see the words on the Han as you go into the Zendo to go meditate, you're being, you're being taught about the Dharma already. You haven't even sat yet, but you're being taught about the Dharma. And the first teaching is a beautiful teaching. Great is the matter of birth and death. It's good. Everybody get that? And I'm saying birth is good, death is good. And the whole life that happens between birth and death, this is good or great, as they say in Zen. And, you know, I, I don't know if I've actually said this or thought this before my accident. But since the accident, I've so appreciated being alive. I mean, really, really appreciated life in a different way. And it's, and it's not that I didn't appreciate it before, or didn't or thought it was anything wrong with it. But there's, there's a difference when you, you really get, oh, this is a temporary situation. Whatever happened, whatever, whatever happened, whatever our karma is, we might say in Buddhism, that got us here, it's not a permanent situation. That's just the reality of life. It's here, we're here for a while, you know, a day or a year or 10 years or 15 or 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 or 90 or 100 or 102, you know, 107, you know, not much more than that, right? And that's just reality. It's not, oh, you're bad at 107, so you're going now. No, it's just, we don't live forever. Life is, there's something amazing about life itself. And there's the opportunity for us to wake up to the beauty of life, to what's, what's magical about life and what's kind of brilliant about human incarnation. And so great is the matter of birth and death is the first teaching when you go to Zen Center. And then it says life passes swiftly and is quickly lost. Right? Everybody got that? I didn't get that for a long time. You know, when I was younger, it seemed like, oh, it's a long time. I'm alive. I've been alive 15 years or 20 years and 25 years. And, you know, it seemed like, oh, and I got a lot more will happen. And, you know, and, but it, it's one of the interesting things. Generally, when you talk to people who are older, you know, they have a sense of the timeline of life, but they also say, oh, it went like that. It went quick. It's gone. And if you even, any of you, if you think of your life, of what's been gone, it's not here anymore, right? You may have lots of memories, lots of good memories, wonderful memories, 
great. You don't have to get rid of those. But the life, that life you lived, it's gone. And it's one of the shocking things sometimes to really see, oh, however we are, you know, 20 or 40 or 60 or 80, doesn't matter. All that life, that's happened. And now it's, now it's here. Life is here. This is life. This is living life. Not memory life, not idea, not something we wrote down or remembered. And we, you know, and of course, when you get a little older, you kind of remember it, or you, you remember it and you can't remember it so well, or you, or you tell somebody what happened, they say, that's not what happened. <laughs> you think, shit, you know, well, you know, maybe it's not that good if, if it wasn't what I thought happened. But there's, so there's, right? Great is birth and death, and life is impermanent. And the Dharma asks us, really encourages us to recognize, not as a bad thing, but as a liberating way to understand reality. See the truth of impermanence. Wake up to the truth of impermanence. Because what's here, what's alive, is not something about, oh, it's here and then it's gone, it's here and then it's gone. There's something that wakes up. And the waking up is moment by moment by moment by moment. And so they say, they say, awaken, awaken. Do not waste your life. It's, it's, it's an amazing gift to be alive. And especially, you know, I feel that more since my accident. It's, I mean, it always seemed like there was a lot of gifts or a lot of blessings. You know, and believe me, I didn't just have an easy life. I could tell you some stories. But, um, but still, there was so much. We, we have such a rich life in general. It's so many opportunities. And human beings, we as human beings are endowed with so much intelligence, so much creativity, so much heartfulness. And when that starts to get freed up, wow, really wow, that's a beautiful thing. And, and that's, that's worth all our effort, is to do the work, do the practice, do what's needed, so these innate or inherent gifts can really flower. And that's what practice is about, is really allowing human beings to flower. And when I say human beings, I mean you. I don't mean, oh, those human beings out there, or those human beings in monasteries, or those human beings who are... I mean you, because really, that's who the Buddha was talking to. He had, he had a beautiful understanding of human reality, and he really saw the possibility for us, for you, each human being, to awaken. And one of the ways that he helped people, in addition to teaching them mindfulness, in addition to teaching about compassion, was he taught people to be mindful of their own impermanence. He taught people to, to learn how to come into harmony with reality and that reality awakening us. So, Conventionally, we like to push away the parts of reality we don't like. 
and try to grab or hold on to or get the parts we do like. And Buddhism does a different thing. It says, see if you can be mindful, see if you can pay attention, see if you can start to be present with whatever reality brings you. And it doesn't say, oh, you, it has to be bad. It doesn't say that. It says, don't be surprised if there's some difficulties in human life, because that's part of the deal for all of us, for every human being. The word, how many people know the word dukkha? Here, let me see. How, wait, wait. No, no. How many people don't know the word dukkha? Let me just see. No, it's good. Okay, this is a really good word. So here, you're getting two good things from me. Now, I said once, you're all going to die. That's true. And then dukkha. Dukkha is a word, is a Pali word, and a word that's used in Buddhism that's generally translated as suffering. And the Four Noble Truths, which are the cornerstone of Buddha's teaching, begin with dukkha, the understanding of dukkha, the cessation of dukkha, and then the skillful means or the path that leads to the cessation of dukkha. Dukkha means suffering, difficulty, heart, heartache, fear, tension, tightness, holding, grasping, believing, you know, in fantasy or being, being uh, um, deluded about reality. All dukkha. And dukkha can be small. You know, like how many people feel like they need to go to the bathroom right, right now? Let me just see. Nobody? Oh, there, thank you. Okay. You know, so if you have a little, your bladder is a little saying, oh, yeah, I hope he doesn't talk too long. It's a little bit of dukkha. It's minor dukkha. But it's normal dukkha because dukkha is part of human life. And then there's other dukkha like, you know, my bike accident was some serious dukkha. Actually, probably, I, I don't know. I mean, it was definitely some serious dukkha for my family and friends. I mean, it was also some dukkha for me, but it was actually probably a little easier for me than for my family and friends. But maybe we'll get into that at some point. But the, the Buddha said, if we can start to be mindful of reality, we can start to learn how to navigate our way to be present and to find a part of us that is not suffering from dukkha. Because awareness is an amazing capacity that we have. It's an amazing capacity. We can be awake. We can be aware. And here, I'll say one thing about my accident. So even at the worst points after my accident, and I had, you know, broken bones and my head had gotten hit hard. You know, I had concussion from the helmet, even though I had a helmet on because I hit pretty hard when I went down this big hill and didn't end up on the wheels, right? I ended up on the ground. Um, um, there were times, even with physical pain and you know, I'm not a great patient in a hospital, I have to admit. I don't like being told what to do like that. And uh, it was, I wasn't happy about stuff. But still, it was amazing to watch the capacity of the heart and mind to be awake in the middle of that situation. And I don't even, I'm not even saying, oh, I did this because I wasn't together enough to do it. But for whatever reason, maybe I'd have enough training, it did itself. And that was amazing. 
because it was good and it was liberating. It was freeing in the middle of a lot of difficulty. And it gave me a lot more confidence around uh, dying, too. It's like, oh, we don't know what's going to happen when we die, right? We have our ideas. We know, we know the human body's going to cease in the usual way. But we don't know what happens to consciousness. Let's see. Don't, don't, don't um, um, impose your beliefs or your ideas on reality. Much more interesting to see what reality gives us. That's, that's my, my word for tonight. So the Buddha, in his teachings, he really said, learn how to be mindful of death. Maranasati. And there are a lot of different places to do this. And personally, I'd done this before my accident also. I'd been part of Zen Hospice Project. How many people here have been part of Zen Hospice? Anybody? Few people. Great, great, great to see you. So Zen Hospice was starting by, I forget her name. Anybody remember the woman who started Zen Hospice? This is my accent. My memory's poor. But uh, Frank Ostaseski is a good friend of mine. He started it with a woman from Zen Center. And I can't remember her name. Beautiful woman. And, um, and uh, I practiced there for many years. I was a, a volunteer. I worked with people who were dying for many years. I also ended up training volunteers and teaching meditation classes for people who were sick or dying or caregivers. And very powerful practice to spend time with people dying. Now, generally, people think, oh, you're so great, you're doing this. And I was always embarrassed when people said that to me. I felt like, oh, they don't know how much I'm getting because there is something amazing about being with people. And here's the other end of the spectrum. When they're giving birth, it's a pretty amazing thing to be at a birth. If you've been at a birth, you know that is not a conventional moment. That is, that, there's, a, there's some numinosity. There's some, something amazing about that moment when birth is happening, new life is appearing. In, and it's also amazing when life is leaving. They're both amazing and normal. So Zen Hospice is one of the places that I've practiced, that I learned. And, you know, it's here. Here's a for example about death. This year, 131 million people will be born. 131 million. We'd have to build a really big hall to fit them in. We, they wouldn't fit in this hall. 53, 55 million will die this year, right? A lot of people being born, a lot of people dying. And that, you know, what that looks like is like 360,000 people are born every day. 360,000. 151,000 people die every day. This is human reality, human life. It's not good or bad, right or wrong. Or it's just, this is it. This is the deal. And we can be with this. We are this, right? We're some of the born. 
And later we're going to be some of the dying. We get to do the whole show. It's not, it's not a terrible thing. It's not somebody's doing something bad. It's no, there's a reality that we can, wake, we can pay attention to that the Buddha said is awakening, will wake us up. So, and then in the shortest time, if from every second, four people are born and two people die almost every second. <clears throat> so notice, as part of your mindfulness, as your marana sati practice, what happens when you hear me talking about this. Some people, it's difficult. Some people, it's interesting. Some people, it's boring. Some people, it's exciting. Notice what happens for you. All we're doing is talking about something that happens every day, every moment, every second in human life and happens to to us and will happen to us. We've been born, we'll die. And, And the people we care about have been born and they'll die. That's just part of reality. And mostly, and it's not that you have to think about it every second. I'm not saying that. You know, mostly I'm not thinking about, oh, this person I like is going to die, and then this person, oh, this person. But it is interesting to take a little time to contemplate human reality, to develop the capacity to look at the human experience, which is really all we're doing when we sit down. We're saying, pay attention to body, heart, mind, to human experience. It's awakening. It can awaken us to pay attention to this living reality that we call me, or we call you. Both ways, it works really well. Also, it's very important to get that this teaching and my talking about this is not a denigration of life in any way, shape, or form. I'm not telling you not to enjoy life, not to love life. Totally. You can totally enjoy life, totally love life. I am suggesting there's a way to practice with life that includes the fact that life doesn't last forever. That reality is something we can learn from, that we can be taught from. And the the Buddha talked about this. Let's see if this is it, yeah. He talked about it as one of the things that set the stage for his awakening. And here, I'll read you a little from the scriptures, from the Buddhist scriptures. And you'll hear the Buddha's talking to the monks and nuns, to the people who are following and practicing with him about his personal life, right? His life before he was a Buddha. He says, I lived in refinement. And if you you don't know this, the Buddha was the son of a king. He was a prince. And in his time and place, he was living well. He was upper class for that time and place. He said, I lived in refinement, utmost refinement, total refinement. 
My father even had lotus ponds made in our palace, one where red lotuses bloomed, one where white lotuses bloomed, one where blue lotuses bloomed, all for my sake. He said a white sunshade, white umbrella, white sunshade was held over me day and night to protect me from cold, dust, uh, uh, heat, dirt, and dew. He said I had three palaces, one for the cold season, one for the hot season, one for the rainy season. During the four months of the rainy season, I was entertained, I was entertained in the rainy season palace by minstrels without a single man among them. And I did not once come down from the palace. You gotta think about that a little, right? He was treated quite well being the prince that he was. And then he said, even though I was endowed with such good fortune, such total refinement, the thought occurred to me. And then he names a number of thoughts that came to him where he contemplated reality and the impact. And he says, when an untaught ordinary person, him or herself subject to aging, not beyond aging, sees another who is aged, uh, then one is horrified or humiliated or disgusted, oblivious that he or she also is subject to aging. If I, who am subject to aging, not beyond aging, were to be horrified, humiliated, and disgusted on seeing another person who is aged, this would not be fitting for me, meaning this would not be helpful for me. This would not deepen my understanding. So he says, this would not be fitting for me. As I noticed this, the typical young person's intoxication with youth entirely dropped away. Okay. And then he goes again and he has another reflection. Same reflection, another reflection. When an untaught ordinary person subject to illness, not beyond illness, sees someone who is ill, they are horrified, humiliated, disgusted, oblivious that they themselves are also subject to illness. If I, who am subject to illness, not beyond illness, were to be horrified, humiliated, disgusted on seeing another person who is ill, this would not be fitting for me. This would not be helpful for me. This would not allow my my uh, intelligence and creativity and heart to deepen, to develop, to mature. And then he says, as I noticed this, the healthy person's intoxication with health entirely dropped away. And then he continues, he says, even though he had such good fortune, he came to ref the same reflection on death. When someone is, who is subject to death, not beyond death, sees someone who is dead, they are horrified, humiliated, disgusted, oblivious. If I, who am subject to death, not beyond death, were to be horrified, humiliated, disgusted on seeing another person who is dead, this would not be fitting for me. And as I notice this, the living person's intoxication with life entirely dropped away. So these are three important reflections. And, you know, they're really simple Buddhist reflections. Aging, illness, death. Part of human life. Normal part of human life. Ordinary part of human life. 
what happened? Anybody here not been ill? Anybody here not aged? Right? Anybody here, everybody here will die. It's just part of life. But there's something about the intoxication the Buddha's pointing at. And notice how you hear this, because often I've taught this many times. I love this teaching of the Buddhas. Often people think he's saying, oh, life is bad, or, or you know, health is bad, you shouldn't be healthy. That's not what he says. He doesn't say you can't enjoy youth, appreciate health, love life. He doesn't say anything like, he, go ahead. Really, youth, it's amazing to be young. It's a beautiful thing to be young. Usually, not always, but usually, you know, and healthy is generally, it's a good thing, great. And being alive, miraculous. But watch out for the intoxication. Because you know what you're like, anybody here never been intoxicated? Let me see. Okay, great. My kind of crowd. Um, um, uh, you know, intoxicate, when we're intoxicated, we don't see clearly. Our intelligence is not so available to us. Our heartfulness is often uh, diminished in a real way, a pure way. And so the Buddha is saying, watch out for the intoxication of, of uh, youth, of health, of life. Because then we can start to look, be aware, be awake directly at the reality that we are. We are life. And of course we're life and we have a name and we have a past and we have all that stuff. But really, what are we in, in reality? In the, in if, we, if we let go of the past, if we let go of the ideas, if we let go of our beliefs, there's something here. And that something that's here can awaken. And it's a powerful reflection to reflect on death. You know, when I told somebody what I was going to do here, they said, oh, that's Monday night crowd won't like that. And death, you shouldn't do death on Monday night. You know, you can tell them not to invite me back. That's okay. <laughs> but... but um, it's liberating to come to terms with life. What else are we going to do? Pretend? I would pretend, if it worked, I would say pretend. Really, I don't have any pride about that. It just never worked for me. It didn't, it didn't work to pretend I was fine after my bike accident. Or it didn't work to pretend, oh, my bones didn't hurt. Or, that, or to pretend I could move my shoulder when I couldn't move my shoulder for about four or five weeks, right? I mean, I couldn't do this for a while. It was like when this started happening, that's like, wow, right? Something normally, you know, right? You always do this. But when that doesn't happen for a while, you see, oh, this is wow. It's wow. Life is, has a wow to it. And I don't mean a wow, intoxicated uh, a wow. I mean like, oh no, reality is amazing and we have the possibility of waking up through reality. And that's a beautiful gift that Buddhism offers us. 
here's, here's a story, one of my favorite suttas of all the Buddhist teachings called the advice to Natapindaka. And Natapindaka, maybe more than anything, we could say he is the lay forefather. He was a lay practitioner. He was a person. He was a businessman. He had a family. And he became devoted to the Dharma, devoted to the Buddha, and practiced seriously his whole life. Uh, if my memory is correct, and this is my shaky thing, is my memory, but um, the, and I'm pretty sure this is true. He um, offered the first land for the first monastery that the Buddha built. He bought a big piece of land called Jetta's Grove, and that became the, the first monastery land for the Buddha. And so he was, it's said here in the story, he was afflicted, suffering, gravely ill, the householder, and not the Pindaka. And then um, somebody told the Buddha, Natapindaka is afflicted, etc. And the Buddha said, um, and he pays homage at the Blessed One. And so the Buddha told Sariputta to go and see him and go see Natapindaka, see how he's doing. And, and so one of his major, you know, disciples, Sariputta, Sariputra sometimes in, the, um, in some of the Buddhist language. So um, he goes to see Anathapindaka, and Anathapindaka talks to him directly. And he says, you know, Sariputta says, how are you doing? And, and Anathapindaka says, I am not getting well. I am not comfortable. Painful feelings are increasing, not subsiding. They're increasing, they're subsiding, and they're not, subs and they're not subsiding is apparent. Just as if a strong man were splitting my head open with a sharp sword, so too violent winds cut through my head. I am not getting well. Just as if a strong man were tightening a tough leather strap across my head uh, like a headband, so too there are violent pains in my head. I am not getting well. Just as if a skilled butcher or his apprentice were to carve up an ox's belly with a sharp butcher's knife, so too violent w winds are carving up my belly. I am not getting well. Just as if two strong men were to seize a weaker man by his arms and roast him over hot coals, so too, we don't have that too much now, thank you, um, uh, so too there is a violent burning in my body. I am not getting well. So, so this is what the teacher hears from the student, right? And so Anathapindaka is honest. He's direct. He's clear about what's happening. And so Sariputta gives him a teaching. And it's a beautiful teaching, and it's a pith teaching in Buddhism. And I'll give you some of it. It's a long, long version here. But it says, Then, householder, you should train yourself thus. I will not cling to the eye, and my consciousness... Listen to the language here. My consciousness will not be dependent on the eye. Thus you should train. You should train thus. I will not cling to the ear. I will not cling to the nose. I will not cling to the tongue. I will not cling to the body. I will not cling to the mind. And my consciousness will not be dependent on the mind or the nose or the taste or any of those other things. And then he continues, he continues on. 
um, he says, you know, various um, uh, refinements of that same teaching. And it's one teaching. It's don't cling to anything because nothing stays. Everything is impermanent. It will change. And there is the possibility, at least as they say here, that consciousness will not be dependent even on the mind. And he goes through the mind, he goes through all eye consciousness and ear consciousness, he goes through sounds and odors and flavors, he goes through feelings that are born of eye contact or feelings that are born of nose contact or feeling that's born of the body or feeling of the heart and mind. And then he keeps, and then he continues and he gets even more fundamental. He says, householder, you should train thus. I will not cling to the earth element or the water element or the fire element or the air element or the space element. So he's going into more refined states of consciousness and of reality and saying even that we don't cling to because we're all made of earth, air, fire, water, space. Those are more fundamental than those than the you know, sound or sensation. And then he continues, uh, then he goes and he tells uh, Anattapindika, I will not cling to the world and my consciousness will not be dependent on the world. I will not cling to the world beyond and my consciousness will not be dependent on the world beyond. Thus you should train. Householder, train yourself thus. I will not cling to what is seen, heard, sensed, cognized, encountered, sought after, examined by the mind, and my consciousness will not be dependent on that. And then Anathapindika is weeping, crying, on hearing this teaching. And Sariputta says, are you foundering, householder? Are you sinking? And, and Anathapindika says, no. No, I'm not foundering, I'm, I'm uh, venerable. I am not sinking. But although I have long waited upon the teacher and the bhikkhus, the practitioners, monks and nuns, worthy of esteem, never before have I heard such a talk on the Dharma. Never before. And then he's, Sariputta replies and says, such talk on the Dharma, householder, is not given to lay people generally. Such talk on the Dharma is given to those who have gone forth or become monastics. And so Anathapindaka, our forefather, right, for all Dharma practitioners, really, all lay people, he says, well then, Sariputta, let such talk on the Dharma be given to lay people. There are clans men and women with little dust on their eyes who are wasting away through not hearing such talk on the Dharma. There are those who will understand this Dharma. And so it was then that the teaching of the Buddha was changed so that this deeper or more profound or more fundamental teaching was given about not clinging. And here I want to be careful because I don't, I don't actually use the phrase that much to not cling. I, here's my belief as a practitioner and as a teacher. If you learn how to be mindful, you will discover how to, not clinging will happen naturally. 
that you will see, oh, everything is just appearing and disappearing momentarily. Sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, sensation, feeling, emotion, thought, belief, it's all happening. And reality has a magical quality to it. And we can be aware of that. And when we're aware of that, we find a part of us that is free of it at the same time. And so you don't have to, I don't teach people actually not to cling, but what that means is that what happens is we try to cling to things that we can't cling to. There's actually nothing you can really cling to. And that's why the teaching on death is an important teaching, because it teaches us something about reality. That we can have a wonderful life, great loves, family, care, work. Great, do it all. Enjoy it all. Express the Dharma in that way, with your intelligence and your heartfulness. Beautiful way to express the Dharma. But if you think you own it, you'll suffer. It's, that's not exactly the truth of the way things are. The way things are is we are an expression of the Dharma. We are a manifestation of reality, like everything else. And when we begin to come into alignment with reality, there's a freedom that happens. There's a truth to that. And in some ways, the only way to do that, that I know, well, no, I won't say that. That wouldn't be accurate. One of the key ways I know to come to that reality is through Dharma practice. And really, after my accident, I, I can't tell you how grateful I was that I'd practiced in my life and that I'd practiced a lot. Because even, as I said, even in the middle of the most difficult times of this accident, where really I was a little out of my mind, you know, no doubt about it. I'd had enough concussion. It was hard and painful, broken bones and body and weird shit in the hospital because that's, you know, they're trying to help, but it's not, a, you know, my favorite place to be. Um, consciousness would be awake and that awakeness was good. And, you know, I'm not trying to convince you of that, but that was my experience. It was, it was wild to see, even around life and death, it was clear either way was fine. And it wasn't fine in, in, a, in a down way or depressed way or sad way. It was no like, oh, it's all reality. And even death, I knew that if I died, I had no idea what would happen. Really, all I knew was my body would not be here anymore. That, that wouldn't be my identity. That was clear. And, but the consciousness that was alive, who knows what happens? And we'll all get a chance to see. That's the kind of good news. It's part of reality. So I hope in some way this talk is a little helpful because um, no, 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 you know, don't, come on. Because the, then the people who don't like it have to boo to make themselves heard too, come on. I don't need the applause or the boos, but, but really I hope you get 
that the Dharma is being offered to us here in whatever form it comes, whether it's mindfulness of the body or the breath or feelings or sounds or compassion, it's all being offered in the spirit of liberation, in the spirit of awakening, that there is a possibility, each person here, each of us, this is inherent in human consciousness, this possibility, the possibility to wake up and it's the gift of the Dharma. So let's sit for a minute before we end. grateful for having the opportunity to practice, practice together, practice at this really amazingly wonderful place called Spirit Rock that we've all created. And may the goodness of our time together, of our intention, may it be for the benefit of all. May all beings be happy and peaceful May all beings be free from suffering, free from delusion, free from confusion. May all beings awaken. May all beings wake up, realize their Buddha nature. May all beings be free. Thank you all for your patience and kind attention. Really nice to be here with you all. Uh, I think there's some final announcements, but I don't have them. No, no final announcements. Yeah, turn right onto.